We will be in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel again this morning. You can turn there with me. We are making pretty quick progress <coughs> through these chapters because we are, we've noted Mark's structure of the first chapter and a half. And uh, that means that we are handling two passages per week. Today we will be in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 1 and verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2. In our shopping center, I frequently see a man decked out in military regalia. His sleeve and his chest are festooned with medals and stars and symbols of military achievements. He wears a dress hat frequently that seems fit for a high-ranking military official. Perhaps this man is the commander of a massive ship of war. But if you saw this man, you would know instantly that he isn't that. His body is shriveled and his eyesight is dim. And though he thinks he's sitting in the commander's chair, it's actually a wheelchair that he rides in. And what is really striking to see, though, is that the man believes himself to still be in his glory days. He barks orders, but only in a thin, raspy voice. His gestures that must, have one, must at one time have struck fear in those under him now look pretty pathetic. The world this man lives in is in his head is nothing at all like the way the world actually is around him. And it's actually a very sad thing to see. He thinks he possesses great power, but actually what he thinks he has is long gone. And Jesus' ministry might have amounted to little more than a similarly sad affair. We've seen him last week sweep through Galilee proclaiming the arrival of God's kingdom, a lonely figure in peasant's clothing, hardly fits with the grandeur of the message of God's kingdom breaking into this world. It must have been a bit of a sad sight to see at first Jesus, the carpenter, proclaiming these things throughout Galilee, a lone voice with no followers. Who did he think he was proclaiming that God's kingdom had come and that men must repent? Was he simply self-deceived? How many actually heard his message and dismissed him as a lunatic? But the movement in Mark's gospel paints a very different picture of what Jesus was than the picture that I've painted of this older gentleman in the shopping center this morning. And we are embarking at this point on a series of developments in Mark's gospel that will not only confirm that Jesus is not deluded, he's not a lunatic, but he actually possesses the authority of God himself. The message he preaches and the commanding demeanor that oozes out of him match. We see that he really does have the authority he claims to have. In fact, his authority is seen to be so great that the other authorities of the day become alarmed by his preaching and by his power. 
So let's read our two passages this morning. Mark 1 verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and followed him. And then turn the page to Mark 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The way Mark puts the first two chapters of his gospel together, he wants us to read these stories together, and we've seen that in weeks past. And there are a number of things that make these two incidents fit together. In fact, there's eight of them. The two incidents, the call of the fisherman and the call of the tax collector, both have different emphases eventually, and we'll find those, but there are a lot of things that hold them together. And let's begin by noting those similarities. The first thing is that both take place alongside the Sea of Galilee. Notice 116. Jesus is passing along by the Sea of Galilee. And 2.13, he went out again beside the sea. And Mark has included the word again in verse 13 to call our attention to the fact that these two stories go together. He was passing along beside the sea, and again he was beside the sea. These two fit together. And by including that word again in verse 13, Mark is asking us to look back at the last time Jesus was at the sea. And that was when he called the four fishermen in chapter 1. Secondly, both incidents take place as Jesus is passing along beside the sea. Look at 1.16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. And turn over to chapter 2, verse 14, and as he passed by, that would be passing by the Sea of Galilee. And though our English translations read differently, passing alongside versus passing by, they're actually the same underlying word in the original language. The third thing that we see about both of these incidents is that they both include a statement that Jesus saw the individual that he called before he called him. So look with me at chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along, he saw... And then, verse 17, he called. And turn over to, I'm sorry, verse 19. Going on a little farther, he saw James, and he called to him. 
and then compare that with chapter 2, verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Jesus lays eyes upon these five men, four fishermen and a tax collector. He notices them first, and Mark wants us to know that. He didn't bump into them. He saw them, and then he called them. Was he looking for them on purpose? Was his seeing of them simply a, oh, I didn't know he was there? Was it simply a seeing of noticing, or was it a seeing of, I finally found who I was looking for? The fourth thing that holds these two incidents together is that Jesus finds both the fisherman and the tax collector in the middle of the elements of their occupations. Where does he find the fisherman? Verse 16 of chapter 1, he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. He finds them with a net beside the sea because they are fishermen. Chapter 1, verse 18, he finds James and John with nets and boats and a father and hired servants in the boat. The fishermen are alongside the sea, they are casting a net, they are in the boat, they are mending the nets, and turn over to chapter 2, verse 14, where does he find the tax collector? Answer, sitting at the tax booth, exactly where his occupation would have him. The fifth thing that holds these stories together is that Jesus follows his seeing of these men with the same command to all of them. Chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus says to the first two fishermen, follow me. Chapter 1, verse 19, he goes on a little farther. He finds the two fishermen. And verse 20, he calls them and they follow him. Same command to follow him. Chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Jesus gives each one of them the same command. Sixth, in both of these incidents, the one whom Jesus calls follows. All four fishermen leave their nets and follow, and Levi himself rises and follows him also. Jesus' command in every instance is met with their obedience. They follow him. Number seven, both the fishermen and the tax collector respond to Jesus' command and follow him by leaving behind everything they were previously engaged with. Look with me at verse 16 of chapter 1. This is actually one of the main points of these stories. Jesus finds them casting a net into the sea. He calls to them, and verse 18, they leave the net. Did they even pull it to land, or they just drop it into the sea? They leave the net and follow him. The second group of fishermen, verse 19, are in their boat mending the net. Jesus calls to them. In verse 19, verse 20, they leave their father and the boat and follow him. They're in the boat, mending the net. They get out of the boat and follow Jesus. It's an exact reversal of the way things were before he called them. 
In chapter 2, verse 14, where is Levi? Levi is sitting at the tax booth. It doesn't just say he was there. It says he was sitting there. Jesus calls and what does he do? It's an exact reversal. He rises and follows. They leave behind exactly the situation in which Jesus finds them. And finally, number eight, in both incidents, the men that Jesus calls to follow him are not the great ones in Jewish society. He calls fishermen, not kings or princes. He calls a tax collector, not the Pharisees. He calls an outcast, a reject. There are many things that hold these stories, these two incidents together, that make them parallel in a way. The same things are happening, right? Yes, but there are some differences, and we're going to note those differences as we move forward this morning. But at this point, though, let's examine each one of these incidents a bit more individually in some detail to discover the point that Mark is making in each of them. Let's look, first of all, at the call of the fishermen in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Here we actually have two separate calls because there are two sets of fishermen one is called alongside the Sea of Galilee. The other one is called after Jesus goes on, verse 19, a little farther. And the fact that this second group is also fishermen in the boat means that he hasn't left the Sea of Galilee to find this second set of fishermen. He's still there. So both of them are called alongside the Sea of Galilee. The first thing that we notice about this incident is that there are two sets of brothers who are called. In each circumstance, notice how it reads. It's really interesting. Verse 16. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. Look at verse 19. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So who does Jesus see? Well, apparently he sees two men, Simon and James, and they each have a brother who is with them. And in verse 19, Mark includes that James was the son of Zebedee because there's actually three Jameses in the New Testament. There's only one Simon, so we know which Simon this is in verse 16, but we don't know which James, so we know now that he is James, the son of Zebedee, and that he has a brother, John. It's not immediately apparent to us why, John write, why Mark writes the story as he does. Why doesn't he just say, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew and James and John. Why does he say he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother? Why does he say he saw James and John, his brother? Apparently, Mark wants to highlight the fact that there are family connections here. Brother and brother. And that makes the striking point in verse 20 that Jesus calls two brothers who were in the same boat as their father. Jesus calls only the two brothers. He does not call the father, Zebedee. Did Zebedee protest when the two brothers took off to follow Christ? Did Zebedee wish to follow with them? Whatever the case, Zebedee does not follow, but the two brothers do. Why not? Why did Zebedee not follow? But why did both brothers follow? And the only answer, 
I'm sorry, what separates the sons into followers but leaves Zebedee as a fisherman? And the only answer that Mark gives is Jesus called the two brothers, but he didn't call Zebedee. He called Simon and Andrew and James and John, but not Zebedee. And so guess who stayed in the boat? Zebedee. And guess who followed? Simon and Andrew and James and John. In other words, Jesus' call and their following go together. And Mark is making that point in these verses. He calls, they follow. They go together, even cutting across family boundaries. Zebedee stays in the boat while his two sons follow. The second thing that we notice here is that these two men whom Jesus calls and who respond by following him have no external reason to follow him. Why do they follow him? They're involved in a successful family business. They've got a boat. They've got hired servants. Apparently, this is a big major operation that's going on. So why, when Jesus approaches and calls out to them, follow me, do they follow? These men are in their natural habitat. Where else would you expect to find fishermen but by the sea and in the boats and mending the nets? It's a familiar situation for these men. Why do they leave it? They're at home. They're in their element. What uproots them? Why do they follow? And you can just look at the passage of Scripture, verse 16. There's no miracles that have come before this. There's no crowd that's following Jesus. These men are not joining the crowd. In fact, Simon and Andrew are going to be the first two that ever follow him in Mark's gospel. Why do they do it? Solitary, peasant man, lowly carpenter, commanding two fishermen to follow him, and they do. It's surprising. It's supposed to take our breath away that they leave everything and follow him. What explains this? They follow him, verse 18, immediately, with no thought. They don't even stop to ponder whether or not they should. He commands them to follow, and they do, immediately. Why? And the only answer that Mark gives is that Jesus called them, and they followed. Jesus' call and their following go together, even though Jesus' call cuts across the natural habitat and familiar settings some familiar surroundings that they find themselves in. So Jesus' call is the turning point for these men. So let's examine that call briefly. What does Mark say about Jesus' call? Well, he calls to them in verse 17, follow me. And in verse 20, he calls to them and they leave their father and follow We have to understand Jesus' call in light of what's come before in Mark's gospel. Because John the Baptist has also issued a call. He has come proclaiming a baptism of repentance. But John was different. John was perched in the Judean wilderness alongside the Jordan River, and he's calling people to come to him. In this case, Jesus is different. John points beyond himself to one mightier than he who is coming. But Jesus says, follow me. And Jesus does not wait for men to come to him. He goes to the men. 
he passes by the Sea of Galilee where they are. Those wishing to be baptized moved toward John. John was stationary. If you wish to repent and be baptized, you went out to John. But not with Jesus. Jesus calls these men as he is passing by. He has gone out to the Sea of Galilee. In other words, he's on the move. He's going out. He's passing by. He's searching. He's looking. He spies them. He lays eyes upon them. And exactly those whom he lays eyes upon are exactly the ones whom he calls. He sees them and he calls them to follow. Two sets of brothers. And in all four of their cases, they follow. And only those whom he calls respond. Zebedee doesn't respond because he hasn't been called. The hired servants do not follow because they have not been called. Only those whom he calls respond. In other words, Jesus takes the initiative to call them. He is the one who starts the whole process of following. And finally now, we need to notice what Jesus calls them to. John had called for repentance, but he had pointed away from himself to one who was coming, who was mightier than I, John had said. In the Old Testament, God frequently calls. He calls men to turn, to repent. But to what does he call them? Turn to me and be saved. God says in Isaiah 45. Here, Jesus calls two sets of fishermen not to follow the scriptures, not to follow God, but to follow me. And the amazing thing is that they do. They leave everything and follow him. Jesus calls them to follow him with the promise that he will make them to become fishers of men. What does he mean by follow me and I will make you become fishers of men? Well, the way the text reads, look at it, verse 17, I will make you become fishers of men. He's the one who's calling and he's the one then who makes them become fishers of men. In other words, his call transforms them from fishermen to fishers of men. What does Jesus mean when he says, I will make you fishers of men? Well, throughout the Old Testament, we find language like this, fishing for men, bringing men in as by a net or by a hook and a line. But all of those in the Old Testament where a hook and line or a gathering of men by a net is spoken of, it's all in the context of gathering men together for judgment. And the reason Jesus speaks of these men becoming fishers of men in this passage is not so much to make the point that they're going to gather men for judgment. That's not what he's saying. I don't think he actually has any Old Testament background in mind when he says this. Instead, he's trying to make the point that there are two fishing industries in which they may be employed. And they cannot be employed in both simultaneously. You must turn from one to the other. They are not both possible employers at the same time. 
The second option though, one fishing industry, another one, the second one is not like the first. The first, they're catching fish. The second, they're prey that they seek after as fishermen is men, not fish. And in that, they are being called into the kingdom of God and given a place alongside Jesus who is proclaiming the kingdom. So think about the picture here. What do we have? We've got a bunch of fishermen alongside the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is not alongside the Sea of Galilee. Those fishermen have gotten up that morning, they've left the village and they've gone down to the sea to fish. Jesus has gotten up that morning and he has gone down to the sea to do what? To fish. He is a fisherman himself. And he calls four men who are fishermen to turn away from their fishing business to enter into his fishing business. And what is that business? It is the proclamation of the kingdom. It is calling men to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus invites them, be part of my kingdom and take up the role, the industry, the occupation that I am involved in. What net does Jesus use to call men? His net is his words, his proclamation, his preaching, his call. And those whom he calls respond, just as those who are trapped by the net in the fishing industry, those fish respond and they come and they follow along behind those fishermen all the way back to shore and to market. Now these four will become fishers of men. They too will proclaim the kingdom. They too will call men to follow Jesus. They too will labor alongside of him to proclaim the kingdom. And so all that we see in this first incident leads us then to four conclusions. Okay. Four conclusions about this incident. The first is that Jesus initiates discipleship. So these would be like the four points of the first section of the sermon. Jesus initiates discipleship. He's the one who sees. He's the one who commands men to follow him. He is the one who determines who his followers will be. He calls the four fishermen, but not Zebedee. And this takes on special significance when we realize that his calling in this passage of Scripture is actually a calling to repent and to enter the kingdom. We'll see that more specifically in the passage about Levi. But there he says, I came, he's been saying, I came to preach. I came to proclaim. He says, I came to call. Who? Sinners, to repent. And so his calling here is a calling to repentance. It is a calling to follow the king, to enter into the kingdom, to possess eternal life. And Jesus is the one who initiates that relationship. He passes by, he sees, he calls, and men respond. Jesus appears seemingly out of nowhere, and he calls them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. It sounds a lot like God appearing out of nowhere to Abraham. Go forth from your country, and I will make you to be a great nation. In both situations, Abraham's and the fishermen's, the blessing of being part of God's kingdom comes to those whom God calls and whom God makes. The second conclusion that we come to is that Jesus initiates discipleship irresistibly. 
No one Jesus called refused to follow. In this passage, Jesus is not issuing invitations. He is giving commands. Follow me. And every person whom he calls to follow responds. The fishermen have no choice. They must. Because he speaks to them with heaven's own authority. And this actually is what we see throughout Mark's gospel. Mark makes a huge point concerning the power of Jesus' words. Listen to this. Jesus' words produce the results they call forth. Be silent and come out of him. And the demon came out. Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumai, little girl, arise. And immediately the dead girl got up and began walking. There are many of these sorts of passages in Mark. And here's one more. Follow me. And they leave everything and do it. Jesus' words produce what they call for, and they do so irresistibly. Here we find the first instance of Jesus uttering his call, his authoritative word in Mark's gospel. The voice says to these four fishermen, follow me, and they do. And the only explanation of that is that Jesus' call is sovereign. Whomever Jesus calls responds. He's sovereign over demons. Those whom he rebukes come out. He's sovereign over death. When he takes the hand of a dead 12-year-old girl and calls her to life, she rises up and walks. And when he comes beside the sea, he is sovereign even over the human will. He calls fishermen to leave all and to follow him. And they do. Jesus initiates discipleship irresistibly. Third, Jesus calls these fishermen to follow him. He is the center of it all. To enter into the kingdom of God is to follow Jesus of Nazareth. It is to believe his words, to turn away from all else, to entrust yourself to him alone. This is what it means to repent. And that's astounding to us. Because in the Old Testament, anytime there is turning or repentance language, it is always to God. Turn to me and be saved, God calls. Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven anticipates the day when all the straying and wayward ends of the earth shall return to the Lord and worship Him. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. And yet Jesus appears and calls men, Turn to me! Return to me. It is an astounding development in human history. A peasant man in Galilee calling human beings to repent, to turn to him, and to enter into God's kingdom. And the fourth conclusion that we find is this. It is astounding in this passage to see that Jesus calls fishermen. He calls four fishermen to follow him, to leave their nets and their father, to join themselves to him. It is for three years now that these fishermen will enjoy his company, and he will exist in theirs. Can we say enjoy? Was it an enjoyable thing for Jesus Christ to be amongst this company of four fishermen? He doesn't choose the great and mighty. He calls the lowly, the weak, the despised, and those who are nothing. And that's actually what becomes the dominant theme in the second incident. Turn to chapter 2, 
We'll look at the calling of the tax collector. Jesus calls men to enter the kingdom, and by his authoritative call, the kingdom springs up. Now there are four more in the kingdom. If it is by his call that men are brought into the kingdom, who will he call to enter into the kingdom? Who will make up this kingdom? Let's read Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The four has expanded to many, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The striking thing here is that Jesus' popularity has increased. In verse 14, he goes out again beside the sea, but this time there's a huge crowd that has come to him. His popularity has increased, and once again he is beside the sea. And just as before in Galilee, he's teaching. He's proclaiming the kingdom, just as we saw in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. But this time there's a crowd who's listening to him. He's gathered a crowd around him. And just as before, he winds up his teaching of the crowds. End of verse 15 of chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel. He finishes his teaching and goes fishing. And here also in verse 13, he's teaching the crowd. But then he winds up his teaching, verse 14, and goes fishing. Passing along the shore of Galilee again, he's searching, he spies him, Levi. He calls him, and Levi follows. Previously, Jesus had called two brothers, and while Zebedee must have heard the call, he did not follow. Jesus had directed the call to the two, and it was only the two who followed. And now Zebedee, the one who does not follow, is actually replaced by a whole crowd of people. They've come to him to be taught, but he has not called them to follow. And they do not ultimately, in this gospel, follow him. But Jesus singles out a man, Levi. And he calls him, follow me. And Levi does. He follows him. The proclamation that Jesus makes is far and, far and wide, but that does not guarantee the following until Jesus calls. And then the one he calls responds and follows. We get into Levi's house and we find out there are many tax collectors and sinners that Jesus eats with who are following him. And lest we think... Oh, the many got in there because they heard Jesus preaching and they decided they would follow. He never called them. They just decided they would come. And lest we think that, look at verse 17. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call such sinners and they're here in Levi's house with him because he called them. In other words, this group is expanding by Jesus' call. Those who are part of the kingdom, who have repented and believed and who follow, that group is expanding because of Jesus' call. But that expanding group is in contrast to the crowd that he does not call. 
whom he merely proclaims the kingdom to. The main point of this narrative now, verse 15, is on who is Jesus calling? And the answer is it's tax collectors and sinners. In fact, it's a whole crowd of them. Out of the whole crowd, Jesus finds all the tax collectors and sinners and calls them. That's surprising. The kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims is going to be made up of tax collectors and sinners? Had not God given a law in the Old Testament? Hadn't the law defined who was part of God's kingdom? How could you be part of God's kingdom and live under his reign if you didn't keep his law, if you were a sinner? How could a sinner ever be part of God's kingdom? It wasn't sinners who were part of God's kingdom because they didn't keep God's law. And how can the king of God's kingdom eat with sinners who don't keep God's law? The Pharisees come to ask the disciples exactly that question. That must have raised questions in the minds of those disciples. Maybe it was questions they hadn't thought to ask. Yeah, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why did he drag us in here with all these other with all these sinners. Were these questions that the disciples had asked before? Perhaps they had. Jesus had called a tax collector who was beside the same sea in which they fished. Had Levi taxed Simon's and James catch a fish the day before? Had Simon and Andrew paid taxes to him, an inappropriately high tax to Levi? the day before on their catch of fish. How many times had Levi extorted these fishermen of their hard-earned money? What did the disciples think of Jesus eating with such a sinner? When Jesus overhears the conversation and clarifies why he eats with tax collectors and sinners, and the answer is because he came to call them. That's who will be part of his kingdom. Sinners. Sinners. Sinners are part of God's kingdom. And only sinners. He calls many tax collectors and sinners. Not the righteous. Not those who are well. But sinners. It's they whom Jesus has called to call, come to call. He issues his authoritative words. Summoning the sick. Calling the sinners into the kingdom. And wherever he sends forth his authoritative word... The kingdom that Jesus proclaims springs up into life and the boundaries expand as far as he calls. Sinners enter, enter, the boundaries of the kingdom are pushed outward and it isn't long before those expanding boundaries begin to get in the way of the sensitivities of the righteous, the Pharisees, who are not part of the kingdom. It's a new world that's dawning here, growing from a single seed in Galilee. Inhabited now by four fishermen and then by many tax collectors and sinners. It's a world where God's gracious choice ensures that God's kingdom will move forward. God's reign will come through God's gracious and irresistible call of sinners to enter into the kingdom. And Jesus possesses the authority to give the word and they will come. So what does this mean for us? I think there's four things here that this means for us as we finish up here. The first thing this means for us is the kingdom is composed of sinners. 
Are you a sinner? Deserving of God's righteous wrath and condemnation? Jesus did not come to call the righteous. If you are a good person, you may not be part of the God's kingdom. You may not live under his righteous reign. You may not enjoy his benevolence and his love and his blessing if you are a good person. Jesus came to call sinners. It is Levi who is part of the kingdom. Could you take your place around Levi's table and feel at home? Many tax collectors and sinners are part of the kingdom. If you are a sinner, you are exactly the reason Jesus came, to call sinners to enter into his kingdom. If you are not a sinner, if you think you're okay, if you think your works are what will bring you to God and keep you there, then you are not part of God's kingdom. The people who are at home in the kingdom are sinners. And the more you cling to your works, your self-righteousness, your good enough before God, the further you are from God's benevolent reign. The more righteous you think you are, the more difficult it will be for you to enter into this kingdom. The less you think of yourself, the more sinful that you are willing to own yourself to be the closer you are to entering into that door. There are no righteous people in God's kingdom. The ticket for entry is not righteousness, but repentance and faith. And that means who gets to be part of the church? Who do we expect to show up on Sunday mornings? The really good people? The really bad people? That's who's part of God's kingdom, sinners. Sinners who repent and believe. The second thing this means is that to follow Jesus, you must leave everything behind. To enter into this kingdom, you must leave everything behind. The emphasis in Jesus' call, follow me, is not on, I will take you there. The emphasis in Mark 1 is on, follow me, and they left everything behind and followed him. The emphasis is not on where they are going when they follow him. The emphasis is on what they must leave behind to follow him. We think of repentance as turning away from wrong actions. I did a sin this week, and so I must repent. And certainly Levi had a sinful lifestyle to turn away from, didn't he? But in the case of the four fishermen, there's nothing to turn away from, is there? Nothing sinful about helping your father catch fish. Sometimes you must turn away from your father. Sometimes mother, sometimes career, but always you must turn away from self. It means leaving behind your occupation if necessary, your family if necessary. It means leaving behind the demands of this world. It means leaving behind its culture and its wisdom and its calls to be a part of what is going on. It means leaving behind the values of the world. It means leaving behind the foundation upon which this world builds its successes. It means altering your place of trust. Repentance, then, is not first of all a change of what you do. Repentance is first of all a change of who you love and who you are allegiant to, who you bow before, who you worship, who you are faithful to, who you trust, who you love. 
Participation in the, in the kingdom of God is a matter of following Jesus Christ. And if you reject his words, if you push away his laws, if you choose to disregard his calls to repent, if you insist on living in sin or living in self-righteousness, you are not a part of the kingdom. Following Jesus means submitting yourself to him in a relationship of love and trust. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And there is no room to bring anything with you in that pursuit. The third thing this means for us is that following Jesus Christ is a lifestyle of repentance and faith. It's not merely an initial step of repentance and faith. It is ongoing repentance and faith. Jesus did not call them to repent. He called them to follow. And that involved many steps on the way. There is an initial turning to the Lord, but then there is a following of the Lord, step by step. It is a, first of all, a turning away, but then it is a continuing turning away. It is, first of all, a turning to, and then it is a continuing to turn to. It is a renewal day by day of our hatred of sin. It is a continually distancing ourselves from the world and its values. It is turning again and again in faith to Christ. It is a matter of rooting out all alternative places where we might place our trust. It is remaining vigilant against false places of trust, against self-righteousness, against the values of this world, as well as the allure of sin and its temptation. It is finally a turning away from everything in this world. Do you realize that to enter into God's kingdom, God must take you out of this world and you must leave it all behind? What can you carry with you through the doorway of death into God's final full kingdom? Nothing. We brought nothing in and we can take nothing out. It means leaving it all behind to enter into God's presence. And that is the lifestyle that ends in entrance into God's presence leaving it behind more and more day by day. Those who are part of the kingdom are less and less at home in this world. I said there were four things. There's actually five. Here's number four. This is one of the purposes for the local church. In the local church, believers gather together many fishermen, calling not only the world to follow Christ, but also one another. If the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance in relationship to the call of Christ, where do we hear that call? And for much of church history, that call was not heard in private devotions because there were no Bibles except the one chained in the chapel church. That call was heard through the mouth of God's preacher in the local church, and it was heard through the mouth of other believers in the local church. Through rebuke, exhort, exhortation, teaching, and admonition, we help one another, we call one another to follow Christ together. Other Christians who gather around you, or who come after you, who call you to repent, are God's own voice calling you to follow Jesus Christ. We need one another to consistently and constantly call one another to follow Christ. And we as a church then must be sensitive to one another's needs and the need that we have for one another's help to follow Christ. 
We cannot sit back and watch others follow Christ or they will fall away. We must run to those who are straying. We must continually exhort one another lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We must help each other to do it and that means being humble enough to let someone help you to follow Christ. It means listening to the voices of other believers. This is God's appointed means of keeping you on the path of faithfully following Jesus Christ. And finally, here we find evidence of how the kingdom will move forward. How will God's kingdom grow and expand? And the answer is, Jesus will preach. And what is the character of his words? His words possess the same power by which he spoke this world into existence. What he called for occurred, just as he called for it to. Listen to Psalm 33, 9. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is the foundation of God's kingdom. The word of God. The word spoken by Jesus Christ. And this is why our part in the kingdom is to open our mouths and to proclaim the word of God. The authoritative word of God is what moves the kingdom forward. We are not called to advance the kingdom. We are called to proclaim the kingdom. The turn of the ages, the inbreaking of God's benevolent rule into this world, it has come through the word of God in flesh. It has come through the word of God proclaiming. God is the one who will bring about his kingdom and he will do it through his word. And so our place is to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom. The cross, the resurrection, it is to call men to repent, to turn, to believe, and to follow. Lord God, thank you for giving us a king who does not rely upon an army, whose very word is what caused this world to spring up. And it is by his very world, word that the new world, the kingdom of God, will invade this world and conquer and transform and triumph. Lord God, grant us grace this week to proclaim the reign of Jesus Christ over this world. May we look up to him alone for our salvation. It is him and his words by which we enter into the kingdom. It is him and his words by which we are kept safe for your eternal kingdom. And Lord, we are going to enact an ordinance now that reminds us, that gives us a tangible means of turning again in faith to Jesus Christ, turning away from sin, embracing him just as he is offered to us in the gospel. And I pray that in this you might train us once again how we are to live in this world in dependence upon Jesus Christ for all of our life. And we ask this in his name.